In our today's episode, we'll talk with Jim Beck. Jim FCIPD is the founder and managing director of Oceania Management Consulting. Jim graduated from Queen's University Belfast with bachelor's degree in social science. He's a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development in the UK and a senior certified executive coach and certified agile scrum master. He has attended many professional development programs, including the Bain Management Academy. Jim has a wealth of HR leadership experience with top flight international corporates, as well as a background in strategic change management consulting with PwC based out of London before moving to the Gulf in 2006. During his tenure in GCC markets, he has taken on chief HR leadership assignments in regional organizations with a transformation development agenda. He brings expertise in organizational effectiveness, managing change, performance management, staff engagement, leadership and talent development, as well as practical hands-on leadership experience and awareness of different cultures. Jim is also board advisor to a UK-based startup in the healthcare sector. Jim, welcome and um, I'm very pleased to have you here in this episode today. Uh, highly appreciate that you are here with us and I am really looking forward to uh, this fruitful conversation. Thank you, Spurus, and uh, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be with you today and really looking forward to the uh, discussion. Okay, uh, I have been through your, um, uh, your CV. Uh, your journey is quite unique and uh, very, very interesting. So. Uh, what about uh, some uh, spots of uh, this uh, this journey, uh, the milestones of how uh, you you came here today uh, with all this uh, knowledge and all these um, um, things that um, we we came up in previous discussions together? Sure, sure. Well, I, I started my career rather a long time ago now. I mean, I guess it's over 40 years, you know, as a human resource specialist in a large U.S. global organization and went through all the kind of range of specialisms that you might expect within human resource management over a span of about 18 years. And at the level of, you know, graduating through to sort of middle management, senior management level, decided really to make a change. And I know that change is gonna be a topic we talk quite a bit about today, but I decided to make a life change and move into consulting mid-career. And I spent five years then with one of the big four management consultancies based out of London uh, as a strategic change consultant. Mm -hmm. And really that gave me quite a lot of breadth because I moved outside of what was, you know, an industry that I'd become familiar with into several different sectors and a combination of assignments, but with a constant theme of transformation and managing change and the development of you know, future human resource management strategy. And I think that prepared me uh, for then coming to the Gulf and I moved to the sunny Gulf in 2006. So I've been here now for you know, just over uh, 15 on 16 years. 
and uh, have taken up HR leadership assignments, principally in regional organizations. And what I sought to do really is to leverage this combination of management consulting experience with HR knowledge in organizations that are going through some kind of transformation or moving through growth development, uh, more uh, dramatic change in some cases in terms of digital technologies. Uh, uh, so it's been it's been quite a thrilling journey actually uh, over that period. True, true. Um, so this uh, brings us straight to my first question. Uh, it is kind of uh, rhetorical, but um, uh, I will give it a try. What um, do you understand by VUCA, and uh, why is it uh, relevant to what you are doing right now? What is it relevant to what in the business world is happening nowadays? Sure, sure. And really, I mean, I became familiar with the concept um, through reading, and it was originally introduced through the Army War College, and it was uh, it was designed to describe the more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous multilateral world resulting from the Cold War. And it was becoming, you know, more common in business language usage, and that was, you know, to describe what was becoming a more dynamic business environment. And also in the case of leadership, the skills required for anticipating and leading organizations through change. So if, if we look at it another way, VUCA, it, it's a description of how we experience our rapidly changing world. So it's becoming the new business reality. Uh, enterprises are grappling with an unprecedented rate of technological change, political change, economic change, social change, all the while having to contend with black swan events like the global financial crisis and the recent COVID pandemic and the uh, the lockdowns that followed. So uh, I think that you know, I, can, I can wrap some business meaning around that perhaps, Sparris, if that would be useful, yeah? Yes, definitely, but please allow a question before that because you came up with something sure. very interesting. And it, normally it was one of my realizations that uh, drove me to start with this podcast. I have met a lot of people, C-suite professionals, managers, CEOs, executives, uh, chairmen, etc., etc., that they, they love to read military books. So uh, as I am uh, aware that uh, you have experience with uh, PwC, this I wanted to kindly ask you is, uh, is this. I have seen that they love to read military books, but they are struggling to put this knowledge in their everyday working or business life. What is your experience on that? Indeed. I mean, I think that there are many common challenges. I mean, when you look at, you know, military campaigns from an historical perspective, and I mean, I must say I do and very much enjoy, you know, some of the historical documentaries on military campaigns and the strategizing around that then I think that, you know, there are parallels in terms of, you know, lessons that can be learned uh, in terms of business executives understanding, you know, how uh, some of the uh, military leaders through the ages have navigated, you know, those challenges. And uh, in particular, in terms of utilization of resources, in terms of morale and motivation and ensuring that, you know, that the uh, uh, the troops were uh, appropriately inspired, you know, in terms of going into battle and so forth. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there are a lot of common threads, Farris. Awesome. Thank you very much. So uh, I now um, 
would like to return back to where we uh, uh, stayed before. What are the exams? Because this is critical. And uh, yes, I would love yeah. to uh, have some of them. Yeah, and, and to give it to give it some business meaning. I mean, if I look at you know some examples of VUCA, I would start with volatility and saying that you know we've recently seen the reliance on global supply chains resulting in a lot of post-pandemic volatility, mm -hmm. and as well as impacting on businesses, it's contributed to fueling you know some of the inflation as a result of liquidity that was stored up during the uh, during the pandemic. But one of the consequences, and there's quite a lot of discussion actually. Uh, that uh, is ongoing at present about stepping back from global supply chains, stepping back, what's of, you know, questioning the wisdom of that reliance on global supply chains. Now, that may well result in more focus on the co-location of suppliers with businesses going forward or competitors getting together and looking at having perhaps some shared supply agreements. Uh, if we look at uncertainty, um, Uncertainty, it's mainly caused by disruptors in industries where your customer base can evaporate overnight. I mean, we had Netflix, big impact on mainstream cinema. We've had Uber, which totally changed the taxi industry. So I think a key question there for CEOs today is how vulnerable is your enterprise to future disruptors and how to get ahead of the herd? If we look at complexity, um, I mean, change brings complexity. It can be operational complexity or organizational complexity. I had a lot of experience actually of both in terms of reducing time to market and related costs in the automotive sector. That necessitated the establishment of new leadership roles, vehicle program chiefs that had responsibility for a vehicle line all the way through from concept to customer and very complex matrix organization solutions spanning vehicle programs functions as well as geographies. If we then look at ambiguity, um, ambiguity can arise where leaders confront situations where the direction isn't clear. Uh, this very often happens in a merger integration where you can have different, leading, different leadership views about the strategy or entering new markets where the culture is markedly different to the home base. Mm -hmm. So there is a bunch of uh, things that uh, need to uh, we as professionals, business owners need to take under consideration. And uh, this brings us to, to another thing that says that the majority of the people out there, they uh, say that, OK, it is uh, it, it used to be VUCA. So what is the difference now and how are all these things related to the today's scenery according to the results that uh, businesses and organizations uh, create. Indeed, indeed, Sparis. I mean, it's, it's so relevant, absolutely relevant, you know, as an, an awareness, building this awareness of VUCA can help leaders adopt the strategies to navigate the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity that's become synonymous now with running an enterprise. Uh, I think also, I mean, I was reading up a little bit about your use of scuba diving simulation, which I think is very innovative in putting managers into situations which they haven't experienced before, because instability is the new steady state. Change is no longer a process. It's a constant condition. We've got to constantly learn. The old adage that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, no longer applies in an age of reshaping paradigms.
-hmm. We've got adaptive and agile are the new watchwords. Managing paradoxes has become the norm. It's higher quality, more output, engaged staff, fewer resources, strategic thinking, rapid execution, stable processes, continuous improvement. So really, in, in addition to their core business, the C-suite in most organizations are also in the change business. What is um, the role of those black swans that uh, you previously referred to? Uh, what, what are those we call black swans, first of all, and uh, how do they affect the, the, the leaders and um, the managers, the C-suite professionals in general? The decision maker. Uh, indeed, uh, and I think that you know you've outlined um, you know in, in in some of your approach the kind of paralysis that very often executives experience. You know when they're they're dealing with something that wasn't expected, mm -hmm. and these black swan events, and they're becoming more common. So I think that you know the use of simulation and preparedness is important in terms of you know. Uh, having a mindset, having that mindset to, you know, it's not sort of rabbit in the headlamp in the road. It's, it's, it's getting ahead of the game, ahead of the curve and being, being in a state of preparedness. And there's so much, so much going on. I mean, uh, and perhaps trends, uh, you know, we can, we can look at some of the trends that are coming down the pipeline, but the amount of stuff that, you know, executives are having to contend with today, not just as black swan events, but constant, you know, major change events that are that are in the current environment. So this is this was about to be my next question. And the, the thing is, um, can we highlight uh, some major trends that are creating these VUCA situations? Yeah, sure. I, I would say the top top of mind at present is, is the, you know, the state of post pandemic economies and whether a global recession can be averted. You know, we've got high levels of inflation, some softening in the U.S. at present, but the Fed has outlined it's going to continue with its tightening and uh, increase in interest rates during 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that most uh, executives have concluded that the era of quantitative easing and free money is over. So they're having to revisit projects based on cost of capital and also in some cases having to adjust, for, adjust their forecasts on future earnings. You know, if you look at how this is playing out in, in technology, I mean, we've had a series of layoff programs announced recently. We've had Meta, Amazon, Salesforce, Microsoft, Alphabet, Spotify. For many of the Generation Z staff that believed that the companies they joined were conquering the world and the normal economic rules didn't apply, this has been a VUCA awakening. So I think, you know, the next question is, well, will China's pivot on COVID lockdowns in conjunction with some of the target Western government expenditure on new areas of the economy, will that be sufficient to avoid or shorten the duration of the recession? So when considering VUCA, you know, there's a whole range of topics. I mean, let's let's look at block, blockchain and crypto. I mm -hmm. mean, there's so much going on in that space at present. You know, I would tend to separate them. Blockchain, yeah, a lot of credibility. Crypto, I think jury's still out. But, you know, looking at the blockchain, the power of the blockchain to provide significant benefit within organizations in terms of, you know, potentially replacing the enterprise resource planning systems, you know, covering areas like uh, trade, commerce, financial processes, payables, receivables, compliance, 
I mean, huge application in terms of blockchain. Um, if we then look at crypto, I think there's a lot of doubt. I mean, there's a lot of doubt and concerns. We've had the collapse of uh, Celsius, Voyager, FTX, wow. And most recently, Genesis, which is a, a, a crypto lending platform, which is bringing a lot of increased scrutiny from the regulators, but skepticism from the public and the media. You know, It's really difficult to present crypto as a store of value if it can disappear from your wallet overnight or it falls by 60% in valuation. So, you know, it's a bit of a challenge, I think, for business leaders, you know, and having to consider crypto, what their crypto strategy is. You know, they may have to look at the rate of adoption in their industry. There may be some Generation Z, you know, folk that have a preference to settle purchases in crypto, but there's a lot of financial risk, you know, particularly on coin volatility. You know, there's something like, you know, to, to try and counter that volatility, there's something like about 200 stable coins presently in the market, some of which are pegged to the US dollar. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to know what sort of reserve are those issuers holding, you know, to maintain that peg. I think that's a bit of a puzzle, but I'd like to dig deeper into that. But in any event, uh, I, I would say that, you know, that might inspire a bit more business confidence in the use of crypto. But for the crypto purists, you know, pegging to fiat currencies kind of defeats the object. You know, the whole the whole mission here was to try and offer an alternative currency that wasn't linked to fiat and couldn't be diluted by central bank money printing. In any event, you know, I think this this uh, debate's going to continue. Uh, I think that you know clearly it's going to be a conundrum for executives to figure out you know what what their crypto strategy should be going forward. I think one of the other related areas, you know, in terms of currency is that CEOs are having to think about how close is their profitability dependent on the value of the US dollar? Mm -hmm. What are the implications if China or other markets cease trading the petrodollar and launch a competing gold-backed yuan? So quite a lot, you know, around that whole space. I think one of the other one of the other big topics at present, I mean, it's climate related, isn't most things today. I think that, you know, it's renewable energy. So we got this drive for renewable energy. It's going to impact corporates going forward. You know, it may mean that in those markets where they have an aggressive strategy, an aggressive transition plan, that energy is going to be more expensive for some time to cover the infrastructure costs and making that shift from fossil fuels to electrification from renewables, as well as nuclear and potentially hydrogen. There are also a lot of issues that have got to be addressed with the availability and cost of commodities required to support that transition. You know, if we, for a minute, if, if, if we take the UK as an example, Sparis, you know, as part of its zero strategy, the UK government has banned new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 and gas and oil boilers are bound in new built homes from 2025. So it's also the government's policy to eventually have all homes heated by electric heat pumps. So if we look now at the energy, where the energy is coming from, and the energy from the wind turbines has come in for a lot of criticism in the UK as the grid comes under pressure when the wind doesn't blow. You know, and I think this is because they haven't developed storage solutions in tandem that captures excess energy when the wind blows and bleeds it back into the grid when it's calm. 
you know, I think hopefully, hopefully that will change with the development of vanadium redox flow battery technology that enables large scale electrical energy storage. But what I would say is the implications for business is having energy independence and backup storage solutions is something that, you know, you may want to have on the agenda going forward. And that's not the end of the story. Because you know you kind of have to look down at the metals. You know what what are the metals required to enable this green transition, particularly copper, which may not be available within the target time frame. I mean, if we look at the amount of copper required to support global electrification plans, it far exceeds the amount available based on inventory, current mine production, and anticipated mining plans. So how, how long do you think Sparrows it takes to get a mine up and running? How many years do you think it might take, you know, from inception to production? Would it take to get a mine up and running? All right. The, the things uh, that uh, I have seen around and uh, that I'm reading to is like, uh, there are plenty of examples out there, but in a, in a few words, I would say that the technological changes that we have seen in the last hundred years, we will now um, experience them in just a decade. So the change Indeed. is so rapid. And uh, yeah, it is definitely a VUCA situation that everybody needs to adopt. And this has to be done very quickly. And this, uh, this are the, uh, I am um, skeptic about is about how, uh, how quick are we, both as individuals uh, or as uh, organizations or as countries or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, if you look if you look at mining, it, it takes about 15 years to complete. You've got a cycle of exploration, permitting, environmental assessment, financing, discovery, resource definition, preliminary economic assessment, definitive feasibility study, mining plan, license, capital investment, infrastructure, and eventually mine construction. I mean, that 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 that's around 15, and in many cases longer. Now. Renewable energy needs a lot of copper. I mean, if we look at wind turbines, 3.6 tons of copper per megawatt. Solar panels, 5.5 tons of copper per megawatt. Electric cars contain 83 kilograms of copper. Now the UK grid, it's aged, creaking, will need millions, potentially billions spent on upgrading to support electric vehicles and electric home heating, consuming a huge amount of copper. Now, if we look at the supply side, according to Goldman Sachs, there's only two years of supply growth left, followed by an open-ended supply decline. McKinsey has forecast by 2030, copper demand will outstrip supply by five to eight million tons a year. Robert Freeland, who's a recognized guru in the mining space, highlighted at a recent conference that humanity has mined 700 million tons of copper to date, the problem is the need to mine the same amount in the next 22 years mm -hmm. to keep up with the energy transition. Now, if you're in automotive and you're, you know, you're planning to uh, manufacture electric vehicles, where are you going to get the raw materials? So the transition timing for electric vehicles may be compromised by the availability of a broader basket of metals, including lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and graphite. According to Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, the price of lithium rose 480, 480% from Jan 21 to Jan 22. Mm -hmm. By 2030, graphite demand is expected to be triple 
current production with no visible pipeline on how that gap will be filled and with most production currently concentrated in China. Okay. So it's going to be, you know, a very interesting space to watch this, you know, transition. I think, you know, the debate's been had. We are making the transition, but it's about, you know, how we're going to make it and the feasibility of the timeline on how we're going to make it, as well as the cost. So I think there's still many open issues that, you know, that corporates are going to have to contend with as well over the next, you know, five years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence. I mean, why? <laughs> I was reading about Elon Elon Musk's comments. I mean, Elon has identified AI as one of the top three future threats to humanity. I think there's little doubt. Yeah. I mean, if we look at AI and machine learning, huge impact, even on how we're doing business today. I mean, it's been used with big data to give CEOs real-time feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen the use of robotics in hospitals. I mean, I had, I had a colleague actually that had uh, robotic surgery to remove a prostrate, you know, and it's, it's, it's applications becoming more widespread. Mm -hmm. We have machine learning and demand and supply planning to accurately forecast customer demand, customer demand for perishable goods, thereby reducing waste. Uh, and, I, and I read an article recently about a company that's now combined artificial intelligence with ground penetrating radar to analyze complex geological data to improve the success of oil exploration drilling. So a lot of stuff going on. Of course, that all now peels into insignificance by comparison with chatbots. I mean, chat GPT, where are we going? It's a, it's a, it's a tsunami of, of interest that, you know, I mean, I was, I was trying to register and I'm on a wait list because the servers collapsed and there's too much demand yeah. for it. But I, I saw a little snippet actually on LinkedIn uh, and it had Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, Jordan's a very smart, complex thinker. And he mm -hmm. thought, I will, I will ask this chat, you know, GBT, something that will be really difficult to answer. And he asked it for, you know, something about, you know, how would you set out the rules for life based on an interpretation from the St. James Bible? and some, you know, ancient Chinese philosophy and, you know, and weaving those threads together to come up with, you know, a conclusive view on the rules for life. And mm -hmm. it turned around four pages in three seconds. Amazing. And, and, and according to, you know, the, the feature, it was hugely impressive. You then look at, you know, this chat GPT is now being used to write code for apps. So what's going to happen to all the people involved in design and development of apps going forward? You know, what's going to happen to professionals? You know, I mean, I, I, I hear you say that, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant. It's not going to impact me. Right. Well, why not? I mean, they can certainly do most of the heavy lifting. I mean, if we look at, you know, both work environments, the rules based, they've got to find requirements and parameters. I mean, I would imagine that you could give an AI legal bot some case details with access to statutes and case law and in the not too distant future they'd be able to present legal argument so there's a huge amount of you know change and uncertainty in this pipeline around the whole you know application of artificial intelligence you know we're seeing it also in biotech you know amazing benefits you know being driven in biotech you know we've seen the use of diagnostic platforms um i worked in an organization actually that was uh, mapping the genome of citizens to better understand the risk of disease. Amazing stuff.
Okay. We've also seen personalized medicine now targeted using targeted therapies to treat specific types of cancer cell. So they'll design a potentially um, an RNA vaccine, for example, specifically for you to target a particular you know, type of cancerous cell. Mm -hmm. So this whole area, actually, of personalized medicine, when you think about it and you think about staff wellness and its importance in terms of attracting talent, that it may be something that corporates want to consider in terms of, you know, including in their health insurance programs going forward. Mm -hmm. So saying that, uh, what strategies can organizations and individuals put in place to better manage all this VUCA situation? Well, I think there's, you know, there's, 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 there's so much going on, actually. I mean, if we look even on the social side, mm -hmm. there is, you know, different, different, different expectations. You know, I mean, I look just a couple of observations, you know, in terms of um, the social dimension of change. We've got this huge change in demographics happening. Mm -hmm. You know, baby boomers like myself are sailing off into retirement, hopefully to be replaced by millennials in Generation Z. Now we've got a declining birth rate in the developed markets. We've also now for the first time got a declining birth rate in China. And most economists, you know, will tell us that you need population growth for GDP growth. So we're going to have shrinking economies going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no surprise here that China, you know, it's, it's, it's Belt and Road Initiative. It's focused on Africa, where there's very strong population growth and also natural resources, of course. Uh, but in developing future business plans, you know, executives may have to think about and be mindful of, you know, which geographies, you know, will we have robust population growth in terms, for example, of Africa, India, Southeast Asia, the Gulf. And there are now different expectations that need to be assessed, you know, from, from different groups. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, you know, I had some data actually to share for millennials, which I thought quite interesting. Sure. Which was from a, a variety of trend surveys that 69% of millennials will give up certain work benefits for a more flexible homeworking arrangement. Mm -hmm. So the survey also identified the top five aspects of work that employees view as important. And they were positive culture, well-being, a sense of purpose or meaning, flexible work hours and paid vacation. And then we had a survey by the Human Capital Institute that showed that millennials as a whole crave opportunities to explore career growth and develop their leadership ability. 60% want training from their employer and leadership skills and also have a preference for more frequent feedback from their managers. Millennials want, don't want bosses, they want coaches who can help them reach their career development goals. The preferred management style in moving forward is moving from command and control to a style that's based on inclusion, involvement, and participation. So if we think about, you know, if we think about, you know, some other strategies then that, you know, executives can deploy, um, I've, I've sought to, you know, try and map out some programs that I think may help businesses navigate change more successfully mm -hmm. and better prepared to meet those bucket challenges. You know, and during the course of a career now spanning 40 years in HR, leadership and management consulting, I've had a lot of exposure to management theory, which were relevant, I've sought to incorporate into my programs. 
which is blended with pragmatic experience of what works. And as a graduate of social science, I tend to favor theory that's based on research and study rather than solely academic. So I can briefly give some insights, Faris, into, into those programs. So they cover change management, performance management, leadership development, and engagement. Sure, it would be uh, quite interesting, yes. Oh, okay. So change management, you know, when, when I was a management consultant with one of the big four consulting firms of around 20 years ago, I undertook assignments with global clients that were going through some form of business transformation, and I was engaged as the change manager. One of the selling points for change management was research that showed that about 70% of business transformation fails and the top reasons for failure relate to people, i.e. the soft stuff is the hard stuff. If we wind forward then 20 years and most studies still show a 60 to 70% failure rate for major change projects. And in fact, according to research from IBM, the need to lead change is growing, but our ability to do it is shrinking. So my view is that change management has to change. And in today's VUCA world, all managers need to have change management capability, and it should be a comment of leadership, learning and development. So my corporate experience is that, you know, most organizations, they're running with several initiatives that entail a significant degree of change. So change management program you know, is designed to transfer those knowledge, tools and skills to the line managers, thereby reducing this dependency on external experts and maximizing the likelihood of project success. You know, if, if, um, you know, if people are interested in, in, in getting more detail around these programs, the information's on my website. But in terms of change, uh, I would just reference, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, respected theorists and modelers on change. One is the J.P. Motter, J.P. Cotter model of change. You know, it deals really with change processes and what processes do you need to go through to maximize the success for change? And the other is the Burke Litwin model of organization performance and change. You know, and this Burke Litwin model, I find it very helpful in being able to track the impact of change through an enterprise. You know, big enterprise is horribly complex. You've got lots of moving components. And what the Burke Litwin model does is it lets you, you know, look at the description of a change and then to track through how it's going to work its way through the enterprise and what its impact will be in the various components. Uh, so these are some of the tool sets that, you know, I bring to bear in the, in, in the change program. Okay. Uh, I, I've also included um, uh, an insight and an overview in terms of agile methodology, because, you know, there's also some, some very, um, practical change that's happened around how we package and how we launch change. And rather than having, you know, huge programs that, you know, span, you know, a long period of times to break it into more bite-sized chunks that can be managed more successfully by a dedicated team within the context of this agile methodology. So that's also something that I think is relevant in helping businesses to manage VUCA uh, more effectively. Okay. Uh, performance management. Um, so, you know, people may ask, well, why do we need to, why do we need to, you know, revisit performance management in terms of VUCA? Well, in order to deal with change successfully, your business has to be a well-running machine. 
So if you start layering change onto an organization where performance management practices are weak, it's just as likely to break the organization than to improve it. So this program, it, uh, it includes a series of, of modules with recommendations on the most effective way to manage performance. So I'll cover all the key questions around, you know, the use of appraisals, how effective, force performance ranking, self ratings, 360 degree feedback, ongoing coaching, uh, and uh, and also um, how do you how do you instill a performance based culture? So again, a lot of evidence, a lot of work that's gone into how do you achieve that, and in particular, you know, some of the some of the cultural aspects, Paris. I mean, let me give one illustration. And there are about, you know, eight, eight to 10, you know, key recommendations. But let me just pick out on one that relates to culture, mm -hmm. which is creating a culture of trust and respect. So one of the things that CEOs should ask about their organization's culture is where does your culture set up on the one hand, trust and respect, and on the other, fear and blame. So if you don't have trust and respect as a baseline, then the opportunities for staff and the organization to realize their potential will be limited. If your culture is more towards the fear and blame end of the spectrum, then teamwork, collaboration, and innovation will be compromised. So again, uh, this is you know uh, something about getting uh, a, a revisitation in some cases of performance management within organizations and really running through a checklist of, is there opportunity to make improvement? The next program that I offer is on leadership, uh, leadership excellence, two and a half day learning program. It's designed to take leaders on this journey of discovery into the most effective people leadership practices that have a demonstrable positive impact on performance, engagement, motivation, and innovation. So it includes, you know, reputable theory and research with case studies. And that also includes a couple of follow-up coaching sessions to support embedding new leadership practices. Now, the program recognizes the difference between leadership and management. Okay. You know, I went through a scan of the syllabus of international MBA programs offered by the leading business schools. And the learning bias was very much toward management mm -hmm. with limited coverage of leadership, which was sometimes couched as elective. So we look at, well, what, what, what's the difference? What are we talking about? Well, it's management is about defining strategy and plans, managing the balance sheet, setting targets, organizing resources, data analytics, monitoring performance compliance, managing risk versus leadership capability, which is about articulating the vision, shaping the culture, encouraging innovation and collaboration, fostering engagement, and creating an environment where people feel valued and encouraged to become the best that they can be. So according to the CEO Institute, mm -hmm. most leadership training programs don't even come close to delivering what they were designed to accomplish, which is to develop better leaders. So my program seeks to address that gap. Awesome. It also includes some, uh, leadership competencies, you know, to support emerging leaders. So you've got, you know, um, you know, bright young people that have been identified as having leadership potential. So I've developed a program. It's based around uh, a competency model with 360 degree assessment and a follow on development and coaching plan. 
So what about the C-suite? I hear people ask, you know, is there, is there a program for, well, in my experience, by the time you've reached C-level, you've been reinforced in the leadership skills and behaviors that got you there. So generic leadership programs are really much less relevant. I think a better approach for C-suite is one-to-one -one executive coaching, you know, which really demands, it demands willingness on the part of the executive mm -hmm. and credibility on the part of the coach. So I am a certified uh, coach with the International Coaching Federation, and I do also offer that service. Amazing. So, uh, Jim, where someone can find you uh, in order to uh, learn more and to, to um, see what you are offering and what you are doing with your business that is located once again? Yeah, so uh, people can reach me uh, on my website, which is Oceana. Uh, management consulting so you can google me and you can get me on oceanaconsulting.com yeah and you will and, be able to find it down to the comments okay indeed you can find that and uh, and i think sparis should asked if um, if i had something that i could you know potentially offer the audience Definitely. and um i'd sort of indicated that you know i could uh, offer you know one of these programs there are a variety on the website I'm happy to offer one of those at zero fee, other than any incidental cost, you know, to your first expression of interest. So if you uh, find an expression of interest, then I'm happy to accommodate that. Highly appreciate that, Jim. And uh, definitely our uh, viewers and listeners uh, also thank you. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this was uh, Robert James Beck. Uh, was it great? Uh, I think just just to, interrupt, just to interrupt for one moment, Sparris, I think yes. just to sign off, actually, I had a thought. There were some very final thoughts that I thought, you know, I might sign off on yeah. in terms of making an observation about, you know, change in this region, in the Gulf region, that I think might be of interest to some of the some of the audience members. But if, if we look, you know, at the pace of change in, in terms of the Gulf, it's been staggering, you know. When I moved to Dubai in January uh, 2006, Burj Khalifa and the downtown didn't exist. You know, we had the Palm Jumeirah, which is home to Atlantis, and a, a multitude of luxury beachfront hotels was under construction. Uh, and you may know that Dubai will be hosting COP28 later this year. Mm -hmm. We also have had the emergence of some world-class companies, such as the, uh, the first Abu Dhabi bank with over 200 billion in assets under management and making a global impact. We had the first Arab-hosted World Cup in Qatar, which was a great success. In Saudi Arabia, we have Neon, an amazing futuristic smart city with environmental projects underway, which is reimagining what a sustainable future will look like in 20 to 30 years and building it today. I would say check that out on YouTube. It's amazing. Yeah. So if you say, what, what's the secret, you know, what's the secret? of this success in driving transformation at breakneck speed that's hugely beneficial for the region. And I would say it's leadership. You know, it's setting and communicating a coherent and ambitious long-term vision and then getting the right talent in the room to drive execution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also, of course, under, it's underpinned by agile e-government enabled with digital technology. It's a, it's a really exciting place to live and work. Awesome. Awesome. Robert, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, see you to the next episode. Bye-bye.